Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Welcome. Come on in, grab some coffee, take a seat. It is great to have you all here. I recognize pretty much everyone here, but for those I don't know, my name is Joy Unger. I'm a deacon here at All Souls, and today I'm going to be teaching on St. Stephen, deacon and proto-martyr of the faith. So it's a, very, uh, it's a lesson that will be very near and dear to my heart. It is um, something that I, someone that I hope that you will all see by the end of it is someone that we want to emulate, even if we don't always, and I'm very excited to see where it goes. So welcome. Um, as you can see, this is St. Stephen, or at least one depiction of St. Stephen. And what I would like to ask, or just start with, is we see images a lot of who these saints are. Some, we even have images. We even have some icons in our church space. But in particular, the question I would start with, just because we're here, how do you know it's St. Stephen and an icon? Any guesses? Yeah, Sterling. <laughs> uh, yeah, could it be the stones right around here? You know, that's a pretty good sign that we're talking about St. Stephen, or at least someone who has some sort of association with a stone. He was stoned, so you might see some stones with St. Stephen's icon. What else? Yeah, Mark. He's got the martyr's palm. He's got the martyr's palm, and we will talk about that, but here he is right there. Martyr's palm in hand. If you see that in iconography, it means that someone was a martyr for the faith. They died victorious. What else? Compressed accordion. Compressed accordion. Thank you, Matt. Yes. This compressed accordion here. Uh, what might that be? Is it an actual accordion? What might it be? What if I were to hold this up to you? What would you tell me this is? A Bible. Thank you. Oh my goodness, guys. You're making me a little worried here. This is a Bible. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to church. This is a Bible. Yes. So, <laughs> making me nervous, guys. Um, yeah, St. Stephen is usually depicted by having either a scroll or a set of the Gospels with him because he would be evangelizing and telling that story. Um, beyond that, the other thing that you might notice and you might see in a couple other depictions, and I just want to point out to you, he's young. Um, you're going to see with St. Stephen, the way they show that he's young is usually no beard. Whether he had a beard or not, I don't know. But they want to point out that he's a young man. So you're going to get no gray hairs with Stephen. He was young, he died young. You're also gonna get some really interesting outfit selection. Um, this is not the typical outfit that you might see on people. In particular, um, even if there are variations on it, depending on if it's an Eastern or Western-based icon, you're gonna see some deacon's vestments in particular. So it's not gonna be priest, you're not gonna see a stole, you're not gonna see a chasuble. You are gonna notice either a Dalmatic or an Ararian, depending on if it's Eastern or Western church. So those are all pretty good signs that we're dealing with St. Stephen in a picture, all right? So we are um, we're going to be looking at Stephen, and his name is kind of already an interesting indicator of where his story is going. Stephen means wreath or crown. It's usually a title that's actually an honor to be given to people afterwards. Um, he lived a relatively short life from 85 to around AD 34, give or take some of those estimations. So he was young, he would have been around 30 when he died. His saint's day is celebrated on December 26th, the day after Christmas, which is not Boxing Day to my Canadian brethren and sistren. That is, uh, that's not a thing. It's St. Stephen's Day. So I love you all, but I'm, I'm going to have to push back on that. It's not Boxing Day. It's St. Stephen's Day. And I want to reclaim that for us. So he is the patron saint of, of plenty of things, plenty of places. He's pretty popular. But he's the patron saint of altar servers, deacons, casket makers, Italy, and headaches. Um, which you can probably guess. Like There is a sense of humor in some of this. But... 
that is how St. Stephen is sometimes used to intercede for us in different faith backgrounds. So we're going to look at where we see St. Stephen in scripture. Um, and the first place that we see him is in the book of Acts. So this is a modern icon that I actually have. Uh, it was made just a couple years ago, but not necessarily any of the traditional things that I just showed you for a St. Stephen icon. But that is meant to be St. Stephen. And there was a problem that was happening in the early church. Does anyone remember what's going on? This is right at the beginning of the book of Acts. I even gave you the verse and the reference of where it's going, so you have the cheat. What's happening during that time? Yeah, Rich. Uh, uh, Gentiles and Jews are having problems. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a new church, right? Jesus has said, hey, this is a new thing that we're doing. It's a new way to live. But some of the old differences are causing some problems. In particular, there's a complaint coming up along some of the Hellenists or your Greek-speaking Jewish diaspora believers saying, hey, when we're passing out food for the widows, we're not getting our fair portion. That's a problem. So the apostles gather up all of the believers in the area, and they're like, you know, we got to do something about this. And so they come up with a solution. And this... This is where we first see Stephen. So I'm going to read this for you. I'm using uh, N.T. Wright and Golden Gaze, the translation, Bible for everyone, just so you know what I'm reading from, where I'm pulling this from. Around that time, the number of disciples increased, which is a good thing. The Hellenists raised a dispute with the Hebrews, or Jewish, like that kind of background, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. So the twelve called the whole crowd of disciples together. Listen, they said, it wouldn't be right for us to leave the word of God to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among yourselves who are well-spoken and filled with the spirit and wisdom. We will put them in charge of what needs to be done in this matter. We will continue to pay attention to prayer and to ministry of the word. So this is a good idea, right? This is kind of divide and conquer. There's more work than we can actively do. We're seeing that there's some problems, and we can't effectively do that. Let's appoint some people who can do that for us. So they pick seven people to do this job, all right? Um, and this is the first reference that we get of this man, Stephen, all right? The whole gathering was pleased with what they said. Then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. They presented them before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God increased, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew by leaps and bounds. This included a large crowd of priests who became obedient to the faith. So this is the first description that we get of Stephen. He, um, I, I call it kind of the Magnificent Seven, the original seven of deacons. He's listed first, not because he was the first one selected, but probably in order of prominence of who we needed to know. So Stephen leads off first, and we get told already at the first time that we meet him, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now we don't get specific details of what that meant beforehand, but the fact that that was listed after his name right as his description means that he was already probably a pretty incredible person, someone that we really would have wanted to know. Um, he was also really uniquely suited to fill this job because he was a Hellenistic Jew. Um, so his background meant that he spoke Greek fluently. He was part of that diaspora. He became a God-fearer, but he spoke Greek fluently. So who better to serve that community that maybe you grew up and were a part of than someone who's now become uh, a God-fearer and can serve and advocate for you in your own language? It's one of your own raised up among you. So he's one of the seven who gets selected to do that. Um, he would have been well-versed, likewise, in not just Greek, but he probably would have had a functional understanding of Hebrew, or at least the scriptures and the prophets. He would have known that um, and had that at his disposal. So he was kind of a unique guy. Um, John McGarvey has a commentary on the book of Acts, and he notes that initially deacons had the chief duty to serve tables, which you heard, or to wait on tables. 
Yet this duty need not prevent them from discharging any other functions for which they were qualified and for which they could find time. God exacts the employment of every talent that is committed to us and has appointed no work to be done which is too holy for the humblest disciple. So why do I pull that up? We mention that because deacons had a, some people will tell you that deacons had a really narrow role. Their only job was to make sure that everyone got the right amount of bread and that's what they were doing and they were set apart for that task only. But if you keep reading Acts and you see Stephen's story, that doesn't actually ring true. And if you keep going and you read about Philip, that certainly doesn't seem like that's the only thing they were up to. So I think that that narrow understanding of what that role is doesn't actually make sense. So I want to point out that they were set aside for this specific task to ensure that people were being cared for, receiving their just due, making sure that the family of faith was functioning well, but that there was other work to be done too, and they were not kept apart from that, in the same way that none of you are kept apart from that work. Does that make sense? So we're going to see how they, that starts happening. Um, so. I would just argue a couple things. This is not going to be a full lesson on what is a deacon. I think that that would be a great lesson to have when we start talking about clergy and all that good stuff, but I'm not going to do that today, but I will give you a couple pieces parts. A deacon is meant in some ways to be an icon of godly service, and it is meant to be a role of submission to a community that they serve. So let me say that again. It is meant to be an icon of godly service, and submission to the community that they serve. Um, I have a really good friend who, now friend, was a former prof when I was studying, and she puts it this way, it is our job as deacons to equip the people to do the work that God has called them to do. So what's that job? What do you need? And how do I make that happen so that you can do what you're supposed to do? That's the job. So there are two things that I try to think of when, I, when I'm trying to describe, just in a quick snapshot, what is a deacon? What's that all about? Well, the first thing you need to know, and this applies not just to deacons, but I would argue for all clergy, it's not about me. It's not about me at all. That's the first thing you have to start with. I'm representing someone or something else, and it's not me. That's the collar. It's not a fashion statement. It's not a delightful place of honor. That's saying, I'm owned. I am not my own. Okay? That's the first thing. So it's not about me. And the second thing is, we are called to take up our authority. Deacons are called to take up our authority so that we can lay it aside. That's the whole point. Sure, I'm elevated. You, if you're writing mail to me, you could put reverend on it. But all of that, I must be willing and quick to lay aside so that I can care for you better. Does that make sense? So this is how I think of what the diaconate is in this threefold order. And Stephen is the first. So we're going to see all of those hallmarks, all of those self-sacrificial, humble service, all of that we are going to see modeled, exemplified in Stephen. And that's why he's such an inspiration to me. So um, I'm, I'm going to keep going, but if there are questions, please interrupt, raise your hand, all that kind of good stuff. Stephen has a lot of gifts that we see, even though his time in Scripture is remarkably brief. We only see him in chapter 6 and 7, so it's a really quick kind of um, blitz of a life that you see. But he makes an impact. He has multiple gifts that are mentioned, even though he is assigned to technically a limited role, if you are following along with that. Um, with that understanding. Stephen was called to serve at the tables, the daily distributions, and that's like a day-in and day-out kind of thing. People tend to want to eat. They're going to want to eat every day, right? I want to eat every day. This is not a one-and-done thing. This would be a regular job that he was doing, making sure the people got fed. Um, the next thing that he did was healing. And where am I pulling that from? In verse 8 of chapter 6, you're going to see that Stephen showed remarkable God-given skill doing 
what we tantalizingly see written down as signs and wonders, and we get nothing else about that. That's fascinating to me. Signs and wonders when that's applied to Jesus means healing miracles, which is why I'm making that correlation. So I could be wrong here. We don't get more than this. But understand that that's what I think is going on. So I think that he was so in tune to the needs of his community that he was trying to meet the need where he saw it. Are you hungry? I'll make sure you get some bread. Are you unwell? Let me pray for you. And he had a gift of healing, most likely. Enough so that signs and wonders were attributed to him. We don't get that listed of the others. So that's pretty remarkable in and of itself, although I can't go more than that mm, initial kind of guess. I, I can't do more than that because we don't get more than that. It's, it's one of the things I wish you know, the people that you want to talk to when earth and heaven are one and it's the new creation. I want to hear some of these details. And I'd be like, what was that about? What was that? That's one of those stories. I want to hear who he was. Like, how was he picked? Were you doing this before you were picked? Is this something that happened after? What's that about? Preaching and teaching was one of his gifts. He was skilled enough in this manner to rile up the Jews at the synagogue, the Freedmen Synagogue, where he was working. Um, so as he's passing out bread, as he's healing people, he is preaching and he is teaching people about this new way of life, this Jesus, and who he is as the way, the truth, and the life. And he was good enough at it that he becomes a target. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm working and doing things, sometimes I can get tunnel vision. So, you know, think about getting dinner ready. I have a kid talking at me. Not now, honey, not now. Not now, I'm making dinner. Yeah, okay, so there's a little bit like this, but I can explain it a little bit more later, but right now I'm doing this. That's me. That doesn't seem to be what he's doing. He seems to be a man who is functioning on multiple levels simultaneously par excellence. Okay, He is doing things fantastically, enough so that he becomes a threat. Stephen had to be quite ardent and persuasive in just the manner that he engaged with people and with these issues of the faith and how he taught because many rose up and disputed with Stephen. This is verses 9 and 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was teaching. So as he's doing all this stuff, even the best of the best in the Greek community are being shut down left and right. Nah, sit down. Nah, sit down. <laughs> right? So that shows just how gifted he was and that he was uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this work. And finally, we get to see that he is a, um, he's a defender of the faith. So what do I mean by that? Um, we're going to find out that he caused problems for people, enough so that he was seen as a problem. And so he gets called in front of the Sanhedrin, and we're going to take a look at that in a moment. But what I want to point out is that his time in front of the Sanhedrin, which is like legal charges being brought against you, he does not, in fact, defend himself at all. You're going to hear that today. You don't get a single word of defense for himself against the charges leveled against him. What does he do, though? He doubles down on what he was teaching and preaching to begin with. That's why he's a defender of the faith. Okay? So it's, it's a pretty bold move. And, and it's a hallmark of the fact of most of the martyrs that come after him that martyrs do not simply attempt to defend themselves, but they use the occasion, in fact, to denounce or attempt to convert their judges, says Howard Marshall. And Stephen does that. So that's why he gets this title of Defender of the Faith. Um, so like I said, he riled up a whole bunch of Jews with his preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. Stephen gets brought before the Sanhedrin on trumped-up charges of blasphemy. And the charges are a little bit kind of complicated, but keep in mind they're trying to find a way just to shut this man up. And so this is what they charge him with, essentially, stating that Jesus would destroy the temple and that he wanted to change all the customs of Moses. He wants, he's saying Jesus is going to tear down this way of worship and forget the law entirely. That's their critique of Stephen. Um, so Stephen takes this opportunity to speak on God's behalf. Keep in mind, and I want, I want to just emphasize this for how incredible it is, his job was initially to do what? 
Wait tables. Thank you, Matt. Is this part of his official job description? No. No. No more so than it's your or I's official job description. But he does it, and he does it with great faith. So I want this just to be in the back of your mind for how incredible this is. He decides to speak on God's behalf. And he decides to emphasize two things. He emphasizes that God is not bound to any one location. Okay? So, in other words, you say that Jesus is going to tear down the temple. Stephen says, forget the temple. It's the church now. And he also brings up this idea that Israel regularly disobeyed the law or ignored it when it didn't feel like the right thing to do. So, forget the law because you're not doing that either. We're going to hear Stephen's defense, and it is the longest sermon that you get in the New Testament. This is longer than Peter's. This is longer than anything you get. And I think it's really important that we get to hear that today. So listen through this, and listen through this thinking of this as a defense in a courtroom scene. You get a chance to speak. You're brought in. They have all the power. And this is how you decide to respond. Let's listen to this together. This is Acts 7. My brothers and fathers, replied Stephen, please give me a hearing. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he moved to live in Haran. Leave your land and your family, he said to him, and go to the land which I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and went to live in Haran. Then from there, after his father's death, God moved him onto this land in which you now live. God didn't give him an inheritance here, not even a place to stand up in. Instead, he promised, when Abraham still had no child, that he would give it as, it as a possession to his seed after him. This is what God said to him, that his seed would be strangers in a foreign land, that they would serve there as slaves, and that they would be afflicted for 400 years. But God said that he would judge the nation that had enslaved them, and that they would come out and worship him on this mountain. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. Now the patriarchs became angry with Joseph, and they were jealous of him. They sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him from all his troubles, and gave him grace and wisdom before the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, making him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. But then there was a famine over the whole of Egypt and Canaan, which resulted in great hardship. Our ancestors couldn't find food to eat. Jacob, however, heard that there was grain in Egypt and sent our ancestors there on an initial visit. On their second trip, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and revealed to Pharaoh what family he was from. So Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his family, 75 people in all. Jacob came to Egypt, and he and our ancestors died there. They were brought back to Shechem and buried in the tomb where Abraham had bought with silver at a named price from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. God had sworn an oath to Abraham, Stephen continued. When the time drew near for his promise to be fulfilled, the people had increased and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose from Egypt, one who had not known Joseph. He got the better of our people and ill-treated our ancestors, forcing them to abandon their newborn children so that they would die. It was at that time that Moses was born, and he was a noble-looking child. He was nursed for three months in his father's house. But when they abandoned him, Pharaoh's daughter claimed him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was educated in the full teaching of Egyptian wisdom, and he was powerful in what he said and did. When he had grown to about 40 years old, it came into his heart to see how his family, the children of Israel, were doing. He saw someone being wronged and came to a man's defense. He took revenge on behalf of the man who was being oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He thought his kinsfolk would grasp the fact that God was sending him to their rescue, but they didn't. The next day, he showed up as two Hebrews were fighting, and he tried to bring them back together again. Now then, you two, he said, you are brothers. Why are you wronging each other? But the man who was wronging the other wasn't having it. Who do you think you are, he retorted, pushing him away. Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Do you, want me to, do you want to kill me in the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At that word, Moses ran away and lived as a guest in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. 
After another forty years, an angel appeared to him in the desert at Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the vision. But as he came closer to see, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses was very frightened and didn't dare to look. But the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have looked long and hard at the trouble my people are having in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. So come now, I am going to send you to Egypt. So, Stephen continued, this same Moses, the one they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler or a judge? This is the man God sent as ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who had appeared to him in a bush. He did signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and led them out and through the Red Sea and for forty years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. And this is the one who was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who had spoken to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to give to us. This is the one whom our ancestors had not wanted to obey, but instead rejected him and turned back in their hearts to Egypt by saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to an idol. They celebrated things their own hands had made. Then God turned and handed them over to the worship of the host, the host of heaven, as, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring sacrifices and offerings to me in those 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Repham, and the carved, ima and carved images you made to worship. I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of meeting in the desert. God had commanded Moses to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it, brought it in when, when, with Joshua, they dispossessed the nations whom God drove out before our ancestors, and it was there until the time of David. David found favor with God and requested permission to establish a tabernacle for the house of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built him a house. The Most High, however, does not live in shrines made by human hands. The prophet put it like this, Heaven is my throne, and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build me, says the Lord, or what place will you give me to rest in? My own hand made all these, did it not? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors did before you. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? And you killed those who announced in advance the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed him and murdered him. You received the law at the command of angels, but you didn't keep it. Thank you, August. It continues right here. What Stephen said, sorry, what Stephen said was a blow right to their heart. When they heard it, they gnashed their teeth against him. He, however, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked steadily up into heaven. There he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. So, obviously, it didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> Didn't go well for Stephen, and if you think about it in terms of how did it go? Did he, uh, did he get off without punishment? Well, no, he didn't. But arguably, that wasn't his aim at this point. Wasn't his point. So he looks up into heaven, and he's nice and calm, and he sees something, and he continues. And with boldness, he declares, look, he said, I can see heaven opened, and the Son of Man, who is Jesus. Okay, guys, good. It's okay. If it's, a, if it's a common sense answer, feel free to say it with like confidence. Yes, it's Jesus we're talking about. And the Son of Man is standing at God's right hand. Okay? That's the last thing he gets to say before they decide that he can say no more. So... They declare that he has to be put to death. That's it right there. So he gets led outside of the city. It's arguable which city gate, depending on who you believe has found the site of his burial. But he gets led outside the city gate. 
and he's told that he is going to be put to death, and that is going to be a death by stoning, which is the appropriate response for blasphemy. So they decide that it's appropriate. So he says this phrase, he has this holy vision that he declares to them. So he is now functioning in the role of a prophet, essentially. Look at what I'm seeing, by the way. Lord Jesus, he cried out, receive my spirit. He says this as he's being stoned. As he's being stoned, he knows his life is done, on this side of glory at least. And his final words, Lord, don't let this sin stand against him. Don't let this sin stand against them. And he dies. That's it. The first martyr, the first person to die for Christ after Jesus' death, resurrection, sending of the Holy Spirit, is Stephen. The first martyr has entered the pages of history, and nothing has been the same since. But Stephen is first. He is called the proto-martyr because it means he is literally the first martyr. The first. He, martyr comes from the word which means basically witness or testimony. Arguably his entire life has pointed to who Jesus is, his ministry, his words, his actions, and now even his death has pointed back to Christ. Um, and, and I just want to point out a few things here. These words here, this don't let the sin stand against them, this sounds remarkably like what Jesus says on the cross in Luke's account of the crucifixion, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Right? So there's an, there's an uncanny kind of echo here that we're hearing between Jesus on the cross and between what we're seeing with Stephen as he's giving up his spirit. He's called, there's some interesting parallels. Stephen is called to be the first deacon. He is called to be the first martyr. It is why he is the first saint that we celebrate after Jesus Christ's incarnation, his nativity on earth. That's why he's the first. We celebrate him first because he was the first in many ways in this new kingdom. Um, another thing worth noting, and we didn't read on, but if we were to read on in Acts 7, you would see another glimpse of another person that you should know and you will come to know far more in the New Testament. And it is at this scene that Saul of Tarsus is one of the mob. He's the one holding the cloaks for people so that they can grab some stones and throw a little better. And he's there and he's approving of all of this. And very soon after that, we see his own conversion where Jesus catches up with him, where he he receives a heavenly vision. And it's striking to me that these two early believers, these two profound, impactful lives, both of them intertwine in such a tragic way in this one moment. And I can't help but wonder if this is a moment that haunts Paul for the rest of his life once he understands what was happening there. Perhaps that's why he's so passionate in his arguments afterwards. He recognizes that he was part of silencing one of the great advocates. Just a conjecture. We don't know. So the life of St. Stephen is one of humble service. It is one of passionate work and of unflinching faith in the midst of persecution and trial. Stephen has circumstances come to him and he doesn't turn them away. He doesn't find an excuse. Moses, no, I don't talk so good. Not Stephen. He says, yeah, sure, I can do that. You want me to set a table? Sure thing. I can teach while I'm doing it. And I guess I, if you're sick, I can try to do my best to help you too. And if I get brought up in front of the courts and you accuse me of blasphemy, well, I'll set the record straight there too. Stephen doesn't falter. And for that, he's remarkable in that example for us. Um, for, there's a book called The Next Right Thing, Just Do the Next Right Thing, and I often think that that is a great way of understanding Stephen's life. He did whatever God set up for him as the next right thing, and he didn't mess it up. 
Even though it was a very short life, he just did the next right thing. And it had this profound impact on the faith of the church as it's getting going, right? So with the time that we have left, and I want to have some time where we can kind of talk and, and think about some of these examples for ourselves. Oh, this is a potential site, um, depending on where you believe what gate you believe that he was led out of to be stoned. Um, this is where the Greek Orthodox Church believes that he was martyred in the Kidron Valley. Um, we don't know with certainty, but it's at least a potential. I want us to think about some of these questions, and I, I would love to hear some responses to this. What does Stephen's life teach us about faithfulness? What does it teach us about what it means to be faithful? What does his life, what does Stephen teach us about what does it mean to serve? And finally, where are you being called to serve? So I'm opening us up to conversation. These are some questions I'm interested in in this direction, but don't feel limited to these questions. Yeah, Rich. Mm. One of the things you see in Stephen and in Jesus is our desire to be winsome was not necessarily how they approached <laughs> their faith. And I think that's something for us to be confident. <laughs> Yeah. And there is a way to speak winsomely and to present the gospel in the most favorable terms, right? Like there's a way to do that in a in a loving and exciting way. Like you don't want to just tell dead facts or just, you know, you want to present it well. But there's also something about the fact that you can't shy away from some of those uncomfortable moments of conflict. Well, does that mean that you think I'm living in a wrong way? Yeah. I do. I still love you but you're darn straight, I think you're wrong. And that's an uncomfortable place for us to be. So that's an interesting thing to play around with. Yeah, Laurel, I see you too, Micah. Um, that faithfulness and service costs. Yeah. It costs big time. There's a cost, right? That, this is what Laurel's saying, that there's faithfulness and service costs. Um, and, and that's often truer than we like. <laughs> right? Um, we don't know what the costs are beforehand. Sometimes we don't even know the costs during. But the costs are there, and we have a choice with what we do with that. Are we still going to serve? Are we still going to be faithful? Micah. I just think it's so wonderful that we're, we get to look at his life in this season because he reminds me of Mary. Yes. And just her faithfulness and her humility in serving doing yes. something that she did not ask for, <laughs> yes. did not sign up for, and she, all right, yes, I will do it. Yeah. I will step out, and I, I will accept this with faithfulness and humility. We get these, these two examples of just really, really different situations of just saying yes. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of describing that. I love that, that the echo of Mary's <laughs> yes is Stephen's yes to whatever a life of faithfulness is. Different, I'm sure, than what he was expecting to go on there. Yeah, Sterling. Something that has been a, a long struggle for me is um, trying to parse my own sense of vocation and direction in my life. And um, this is really relevant to that for me. And then also something that I have been thinking about just recently as, as I've been praying about the issue of like, you know, how can I serve and what can I do in the world? It's um, been like realizing that as I have sought to understand sort of what my calling is, um, I realized that it's been a very self-centered search mm -hmm. that I have looked for, looked kind of only within myself and in my own sort of, my own interests, my own abilities, but I really, and then when I see, oh, there's all these things that are good, there's all these things that I'm interested in, how can I sort of make an actual decision? Mm. 
Right. Yes. That's a, it's a really important point. I, a couple of things that I find interesting about Stephen's story, and again, this is where we start going into a little more conjecture, conjecture, but not necessarily knowns. We don't hear what he did. We don't get a vocation or a job beforehand. It's just he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. So was he a fisherman? I don't know. Was he a carpenter? Who knows? Who knows what he did? But that's irrelevant. What I find so interesting about that is it's, we have no idea whether Stephen was like sitting there going, pick me, pick me, I can do this, or whether he was someone who someone approached going like, you know, you speak Greek and you seem like a pretty decent guy and you care about this community, do you, can you do this? And he goes, yeah, I can do that. I don't know. We don't know. It could be anything in between or some other situation that we haven't thought of. But how fascinating is it? Like I often wondered, did Stephen sit there and think, you know what I would love to do? I want to make sure that everyone gets the right amount of bread every day of my life. I don't know, right? But he does that job with excellence. When he is called to it, he takes that up upon him. He does it with excellence. And what I love about Stephen is that he doesn't let his other gifts fall by the wayside, right? He uses every one of those gifts. Sure thing, I'm going to make sure everyone gets the right amount of food. I'm going to make sure that you are advocated for this community. But you also better believe I have some preaching and teaching gifts. You're going to hear that too. I have a healing gift. You better believe that's going to go out into the community. He doesn't see that vocation as a limiting thing. He sees that as the starting point or just as what he has to do. And he lives out fully in full use of his gifts and abilities and service and all that. So it's a, it's a powerful example for us all. Jennifer. Right. Um, there's something that, um, for those of you who know uh, Jen Hatmaker, mm -hmm. I borrowed this from her many, many years ago, uh, and something that I use in my own life, and to the extent that people want to take this on, they're welcome to. And it's a phrase that I, that I just call leaning into the guest. Mm. I believe that it is trusting that the Holy Spirit is present and involved in our lives, and that very often the opportunities Obviously, there are there are ways to go overboard with that, but but I do think that there is value in leaning into the yes, and then what is our responsibility is to tune our eyes and our ears to see and to hear to notice the needs around us, and and then see what we're called to. Mm. Yeah, that's a powerful. It's a powerful way of living. If you think if someone's asking me this, do I have a good reason to say no? Sometimes the answer is sure, yeah, there's a good reason to say no, but maybe not. Maybe not as much as I want it to be. Jim, yeah. Yeah, I've just been thinking about how well have we applied this here at, at All Souls. Um, you know, such a beautiful story of, our, of the leaders really wanting to spend lots of time in prayer, <laughs> in God's word, and just not having anybody else to do some of the practical work and therefore not do and then I combine that with that scripture that I think it was just in one of the morning prayer, evening prayer, I'm not sure which which says the Lord gave the word and many were the women who um, published it mm. and uh, in this church I can think of a number of women who are taking up those practical jobs with the willing heart mm -hmm. and uh, well we haven't made them deacons yet maybe we need to give 
Them some official. <laughs> well, let, this is a good moment to ask this question. What does deacon mean? Servant. Yeah, servant. So there's, yes, in some ways, I am set apart to do some particular things with this calling, but I, I, I want to be careful and I want to kind of play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. What's the difference between my calling and yours? Have fun with that question. And feel free to let me know. <laughs> and I want to hear about it in seriousness. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, I've wrestled a lot with the loss and the cost. Mm. But there's something in what you read that just is so encouraging. Jesus, it says Jesus sitteth at the right hand of the Father. But he was the city. Right. Stood. That's right. I think it's not, I would say it's not too, again, conjecture. I've talked a lot about some conjecture today. Hopefully a lot of truth, too. But, but I'm going to say this. I don't think that it's um, an accident that Stephen saw that vision, that he had confirmed that everything that he just said was 100% true. He gets a picture of Jesus at the right hand of God, okay, the right hand of the throne. So that's the position of leadership, honor, all that kind of stuff. He gets that place right there, and he gets that vision into heaven because he's about to pay the ultimate price for it. And think about the fact that before he, like, before he knows, before he knows that this is really going to be death, God gives him a confirmation saying, "Yeah, yeah, this is it." Maybe that enabled him to be able to say those last words, to be able to say, "Father, forgive them." Yeah, Jennifer, and then Matt. We don't, we don't know. Matt, and then I, I want to catch you here. I, I, maybe the book of Acts is the joke on the church. They, <laughs> they thought, oh, let's gamble for the next you know, fill-in for Judas. Okay, literally gamble. Draw lots. Okay, Matthias. Meanwhile, God shows that murderer over there, Paul. And in the same way, the church made the wrong decision and consigned its best preacher to be with the widows and waiting tables. And God's like, I don't care if you make that wrong decision. He's going to serve faithfully, and then I'm going to stand up to listen to his great sermon because you blew it. You didn't <laughs> put him in office. Maybe that's like we can mess up as the church, and the church always does, but the Holy Spirit Pentecostal override. Well, I, yeah, I, I certainly sit there and think, like, this is not a. Uh... Stephen, his gifts did not go to waste. Just because he was setting up a table, that did not seem to curb his style whatsoever. He says, no problem, I got this. In a sense, he takes that calling to be that community. He says, that's cool, 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 cool. That's my community. And the future's in the pots and pans, as Denise can testify, with my labors in the kitchen every day. <laughs> I hope she can, Matt. I hope she can. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Good. That's right. That's right. And now the spirit is going to dwell in people. That's right. And the what was is the old wine bag and now the new wine is being flown or flowed into the new church and it's a new day. And when Jesus was at the Father because he said to Mary, Don't hold me back at the, after his resurrection, yep. he appeared to her. 
He said, I have yet to go present myself before the Father. Mm. And so that moment when he presented himself before the Father, and the Father then accepted and then sent the Spirit, that was sort of the telephone call. That <laughs> now the Spirit has come. And so this life, I loved how you tied in Saul mm -hmm. present in this because Jesus himself at his conversion asked him a question. Oh, yeah. And said, why are you kicking, in King James, why are you kicking against the pricks of the conviction of the Holy Spirit? The Lord was at work in all these things by his spirit, and he called Stephen to do what he did. There was a man there named Saul, mm -hmm. who the Holy Spirit was speaking to, and said, why are you fighting against this? Yeah. Because in his upbringing, this was blasphemy to God. Well, sure. But, in the, but his heart, God saw. And again, the Holy Spirit came to him. So I, I love that. It, it, it is it's a, a sensitive time mm -hmm. in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. It is so powerful because the Holy Spirit was gifting. Oh, absolutely. And it makes you really understand, like, who were the Sanhedrin up against? Yes. It was Stephen, sure. But Stephen was just a servant. Yeah. Who were you fighting against? Well, turns out you were fighting against the Holy Spirit. No wonder none of y'all could stand up against Stephen's words. They weren't Stephen's words. They were the Spirit's words given to Stephen. Stephen was faithful, and he did his part. But let's, let's not dismiss what's going on there. That is the Spirit tending the church. That is the Spirit empowering people. Of course they can't, hand, like they can't hold a candle to what's going on with that. That is such a limited view. And of course the law isn't going to be able to hold a candle to what the Spirit's doing because Jesus fulfilled that. We're past that now, y'all. I know that we're right at time here, so I just want to thank you. Deacon. I know, I have to get ready to serve. So thank you all so much. It's been a blessing. Thank you.